Okay, uh, we're going to turn a, a page, and um, we've been taking a look at the Declaration of Independence. We've looked at the Constitution. We've looked at four of the articles of the U.S. Constitution. And tonight, we're going to turn a corner, turn a page, and we're going to go back further. Um, we've taken a look at you know, this idea of what is America. We've walked through this. We've seen all the four causes. And now we're going to go all the way back to this concept of what is called Western heritage. So this is what we're going to be doing tonight, Western heritage. And we're going to, in a sense, look at Jerusalem and Athens. So these are two uh, cultures and ancient civilizations that had an enormous influence on Western heritage. You have uh, Jerusalem. Uh, This is prior to the Dome of the Rock and uh, the Muslim temple that's there. Uh, This is just a picture of ancient Israel. Interestingly enough, as I've covered before, um, America is the youngest is the youngest nation, and it's also the oldest nation, in the sense that uh, um, you know Rome was over a thousand years, and the British Empire was over well what eight hundred years, probably something along those lines, and yet America has been under one birth certificate and one constitution as we look at the nation two hundred and forty one years. Uh, and you, you, you see this, and it's the most unique government in the history of the world, longest lasting, most effective, most profitable. And yet, you look at, uh, you look at Israel, and this is a, a people that uh, had no lasting monuments, so to speak. They don't have a Parthenon. They don't have a Colosseum. Um, and, and then you look at, at Greece, uh, you know, the, the Parthenon's still there, um, and you've got all that. And these two cultures... Um, had enormous influence in Western heritage. And we use this word heritage, uh, and I'm going to cover that in a moment. But the idea is, why look back on the past when we should be looking towards the future? Shouldn't we progress and not regress? Uh, Because the concept in America today is this term that we've covered called progressivism. And the idea that we're smarter than the ancients. Uh, We have figured out a whole new way to run things. We need to throw off the shackles of the past and re, you know, and come up with new inventions and the like. But there are some things in life that will never change and they're constants. One of them is the nature of man. Uh, and a progressive would, would have this idea that we're not created, that we don't have a sin nature, that a ma- man is innately good. And though our founders strove, uh, were, were striving to, to um, create this nature, this environment, the laws of nature and nature's God, so that we would flourish in the good that, that man possesses uh, and avoid the evil that man also possesses. And we, we took a look at the law from the mindset of the ancients that the law is the wise restraints that make men free. You restrain yourself towards evil in order to pursue excellence. And so we, we go to this and we say, why would we look back on the past? Why, what's the point of looking back on the past when we should be looking towards the future? And we want to be future-minded, but what, why would we look to the past if we want to be a progressive people? Wouldn't we be regressing if we look back? Well, when I was a Boy Scout, um, and I never made Eagle, my dad was an Eagle, my two boys are Eagle, greatness <laughs> skips a generation, I was a Life Scout, uh, but I sure enjoyed my time in the Boy Scouts, and I remember our Scoutmaster had one of those old uh, station wagons that had an interesting seat in the back. Remember that seat? <laughs> And you had a whole different trip than the rest of the people in the car, right? You were always going by these signs going, I wonder what those signs say, you know? (laughs) 
And, and people would pull up to you. I, I love uh, Brian Regan's spiel on this. People would pull up to you and you pretend like you're not looking at them. And, you know, they're just driving, looking at you. And, you'd, and sometimes you'd try to get them to smile. And we'd play games in the back. And it was always a seat that we'd fight for. And usually the kids that were the rookies would be put in the back. And I spent a lot of time back there. A lot of you put a, most of the rambunctious kids back there. That's why I got my spot back there. And I remember this. And what was interesting about it is I had no idea what was coming up. And if I looked out the side window, it was passing by rapidly. But when I looked out, it was this mass expanse that you could take in. And to me, the view was resplendent. And, and this is kind of a picture uh, of, of where we are. The present the present moves by quickly, doesn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm 53, and it seems like yesterday that uh, I was single, and now I've been married 26, almost 27 years, five kids, I've got grandkids. What has happened with time? I'm looking at uh, Jim there in his 90s, uh, World War II pilot, and he's thinking, you have no idea how fast time goes, right? And you, and you pick up speed, don't you? I mean, it is just blowing by. And there, there is, there, there is a, a, a physics equation for that, that, that time picks up as you get towards the end. And, and the idea for us is, you know, the, the present moves by so quickly, doesn't it? And the future we can't see. And if you could, you'd be really rich, right? You'd know what the lottery numbers were. You'd know what, the, what horse would win the race. Anybody have that view of the future? I mean, you can predict the future and you can look at a lot of things and try to come up with some idea of what may occur, but we have no idea. There's only one person, and when I say person, there's only one being that can see the future, see the present, and see the past all at once, and that's the idea that he's omnipresent, and that's the Lord. Uh, The future is invisible to all except God. The future is invisible to all except God, and the present is moving by rapidly, But here's the cool thing, and this is why we look at the past and why we look at history. The past is stationary and observable. The past is stationary and observable. Well, I was a history major, and the idea of looking to the past is you have all kinds of opportunities to see what works and what doesn't work. And and I marvel. I marvel at this idea that the Eastern Bloc countries, the Soviet Union, the wall comes down, communism fails. They didn't even make it to their 100th birthday. Communism fails. And the first thing that Western culture does, as an example, is embrace socialism, which is a form of communism. And you think to yourself, history is right in front of you. Are you an idiot? I think they're not idiots. I think they're poorly educated human beings that have been duped. Yes? And, and unless we know the past, we are destined to repeat it. And the best way to repeat it and to enslave somebody is to have them ignorant of who they are. And this is that idea of who we are, because the past is the only thing we can see clearly. So when we look at the Greeks, you see uh, Herodotus and uh, Thucydides and Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They look at things as what is the good They introduce rational inquiry. It's from them that we get this idea of a polis or a city-state. It's from them we get this love of philosophy, which is the love of knowledge. Uh, They give us this understanding of science. Um, And and all of this comes from the Greeks. And we're also going to take a look at what 
Jerusalem or, or the Israelites gave us. But the concept Western heritage, Western heritage, when I said earlier that if we forget the past, we're destined to repeat it, yes? So this idea of heritage, um, it, it's, a, it's a combination of words. Western heritage, heritage, heir, to inherit. Has anyone been the recipient of an estate? Anyone have a parent that passed away? And yeah, my mom left me some stuff. My wife has a really nice diamond ring. I said, you know, at 27 years of marriage, I never got a diamond ring. I said, it required my mom dying for you to get one, but I'm glad you got one, babe. It's beautiful too. And that was, well, anyways. (laughs) But heritage is this idea of inheriting. It's this idea of receiving something. And so why do we have what we have and how did we receive it? It was given to us. And it was given to us by theologians. It was given to us by philosophers. It was given to us by scientists. It was given to us by cultures that have already tried, tested, and proven certain things that work. And as we educate our children and prepare them, then we pass on that inheritance to them. Some folks have received an inheritance, right? And they received a great amount from their family and left their children bubkis. Hello? We're the one generation that's not going to give it. Our kids aren't going to do better than we did. And the idea is I, I want to live long enough so I spend my children's inheritance. Now, an inheritance, you can look at it as material. But the idea to pass on to the next generation is who are you? And that's why we've done this American Legacy series. What is America? Who are you? Why is Western civilization uh, so profound? And why has it had so much success? In contrast to Eastern culture and Eastern civilization, we're in the 1040 window, longitude and latitude on the Earth's surface. 90% of the Muslim world exists, and that's where you have the majority of the, the terrorist attacks and the death of human beings and, and Sharia law and the oppression of women and the, the murder of gays and, and on and on and on. And what is this Western culture that we possess and that we tend to decry and want to mock and want to destroy? And why is it we're so open to being influenced to cultures that have been fa- that have failed and that our culture is being challenged to embrace history that has proven itself to, to have been a failure because we haven't passed on a heritage, an inheritance to our children. And if we don't know what we possess, how are we going to give it? Everyone good with this? So what you're doing here and what these young folks are doing here is you are receiving something that your job is to pass it on. I'm not up here as an exercise in futility to entertain you on Wednesdays. I'm here to give you what has been given by those who've gone before us so that we cherish it and we pass it on. And we have to be active about passing that on. Yes? Five of you? And you have to find creative ways to do that. And, and in this idea of these two cultures, when we look at Western heritage, this is the concept that comes up that we hear oftentimes that is ridiculed in culture called Judeo-Christian heritage. Judeo-Christian heritage. If you, if you want to get somebody riled up, just use that term Judeo-Christian. It infuriates folks because that's the last thing they want in a progressive movement is a Judeo-Christian heritage. Um, I don't know if you saw the article in the acorn. Um, I was interviewed about the YMCA and 
the interview that I went through had, I don't even think I was interviewed when I looked at the article because the interview had nothing to do with what the article said. It said Texas billionaire. It didn't say Texas philanthropist saves two nonprofit, you know, organizations. It doesn't, you know, instead it, 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 politicizes it and talks about pro-life and fracking and the American Renewal Project. What, is, what does that have to do with anything? And, and this idea that the, the one reason why this person has purchased the YMCA was the sole purpose. They wanted us to be on the freeway at a more visible location, but they went for the YMCA because they knew that the YMCA was struggling and this would be an infusion for them and a help for them. But instead, what we get in the response in social media is somehow I owe the city a million dollars because the city 10 years ago gave a million dollars to the YMCA and the Miller family. And since we bought it, we have to pay that back. And this is going to be an infusion to, you know, this idea that there needs to be a separation of church and state. And this radical, you know, polarizing right wing pastor is going to be influencing all of these things laid out in this article and, and the vitriol that's come forward. And as I look at that, I look at it as almost anti-Christian. And there is a clash of culture. And to use that term Judeo-Christian, to speak that in a school board meeting or to speak that in a community is, is going to be received with vitriol. And there will be contention. But there is a battle for ideas. And the, the thing that, that I have to remember, and, and this is one of the things that I was sharing this week with my family, specifically my wife, is when the article came out, I was upset. I was upset, and I, I, I had to turn off all social media and just stay away from it. I got a couple of texts from folks, did you see that? And I said, no, I really don't want to see it. And, and the same thing happened, and the same thing I talked to you about Abraham Lincoln, where every time I wanted to respond with a text or an email, God said no. And there were a lot of, you know, sleepless nights where I just had to give it to the Lord. Not, I mean, I, I have no problem putting my head on the pillow and going to bed. But there, there were times where I was just laying awake ruminating over it. And, and the Lord just said, no, 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 no. And, and I'm at this point where he doesn't let me speak until I come to realize that people aren't the enemy. They're the opportunity. Yes? And to love your enemy and do good to those who spitefully use you. And he's been ministering to me through the Psalms and the Proverbs as I've been spending time finding myself for a heart for every person that's vitriolic towards me. And I look at them and I think, you have no idea what I'm contending for because it would benefit you and bless you. And, and I, I have to just realize this is where we are, that we are contending for this concept of this inheritance that we've received and have enjoyed for 241 years. And actually, this Western heritage isn't 241 years for us. As, as Winston Churchill said, the Declaration of Independence had its birth on the shores of the Thames. And we can go back further and look at this, and we'll go through this picture of Parliament and, 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 and where the Queen has to knock to come into the people's house, the House of Commons. And there's a big dent on that door because they, they sometimes don't let her in. And, and this idea that government of the people, by the people, for the people, and took them almost 80 years after we had our Declaration of Independence to, to understand this idea of the rule of, of uh, that, that they were created in the image of God and this idea that there isn't a monarchy. And the monarchy now is a figurehead. And so you, you see how this has affected culture. So we look at this and, and we come to this place where I want to talk about three things tonight. Three things tonight. We're going to cover, first of all, um, Jerusalem. We'll get to Athens next week. 
But when looking at Western heritage, this gift we've been given, we're going to begin. And somebody sent me an email saying, is, there, is tonight a continuance of the American Legacy series or is it going to be a Bible study? And I said, American Legacy series, Western heritage. I don't know that that was quite honest. It's, it's going to be a Bible study in a sense because we're going to take a look at um, Western heritage and we're going to take a look at Jerusalem, which is a way to describe is the Israelites. And we're going to see how that has affected Western culture and why this is so significant to us as we are here in America today and what we possess in this constitutional republic. So we're going to look at three things, and you can take your notes if you want. We're going to look at um, creation, creation, then we're going to look at covenant, and then we're going to look at king or kingship. Creation, covenant, and king. Creation, covenant, and king. Creation, covenant, and king. Let's do that together. Ready? One, two, three. Creation, covenant, king. So the concept of creation, um, if, you look at, if you look at the Israelites, what is something significant about the Hebrew culture in the history of the world? It remains. It remains. The people remain. The nation has been gone a period of time. The, it's been restored. Yes, they've, they've existed through... And that's an interesting comment that they remain because though their nation was destroyed, though their temple was destroyed, and usually when a temple is destroyed, the culture is gone, right? Their temple was destroyed, yet they exist, unlike any people on the face of the earth. Fascinating. But what is significant when we look at that first word creation? What is significant about the Hebrews, the Israelites, as opposed to any other nation? Yes. It began with Abraham, who was a Gentile, not a Jew. Okay. I just, I just want simple answers, but you can go deeper real quick. Well, you know, the whole thing with the two Abraham, it says that people that were chosen by God were the responsibility, not chosen because of that. The chosen and the responsibility of God. Got it. In relation to creation, that's one side. What do we have here? Okay, this is a covenant. We're talking. You're, you're, you're talking about covenants. I'm talking about creation. We're, we're way. This is. You're talking about laws and stuff. We're, I'm talking about creation. The first word, creation. Why are they different than any other people on the face of the earth in relation to creation? They recognize, they recognize God created them. I know you are. Let's let's try this one. How about monotheism? Does that work with you? There you go. Boom. What was your first answer? Yeah. I got you riled up. I'm an awful teacher. I'm sorry. Um, monotheistic. Monotheistic. And oh, I know what you said. You said that, that they create that that he created out of nothing. Ex nihilo, right? Let's take a look at the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can open up. I know I said it wasn't a Bible study, but you should always have your Bible. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Ready? In the beginning, God created, and the word created is barach, which means what? Does anyone know what barach means? Out of nothing. Out of nothing. Is that what you're going to say back there? Thank you. 
out of nothing. So, Todd, would you please tell me what nothing is? So nothing is the absence of something? Absence of matter? Anyone else? I mean, that's a pretty good attempt. Yes? What, what is nothing? Nothing is no substance. What else? Huh? Nothing is the absence of substance. Do you understand what I'm doing here every time I repeat your question? I'm using is, the verb to be. We can't describe nothing. We're, we're using something to describe nothing. We can't even fathom nothing. We can't even describe nothing. Yes? It gives you stretch marks on your brain. Right? So in the beginning, God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. And then it said, after the earth was created, the earth was without form, void, and darkness on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. There was light, and God saw the light, and that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. When he said good, what does that entail? If there's good, what does there also have to be? Evil. So there is morality even in the creation story. Metaphysical ideas, good and evil, right and wrong. That it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be. Yahior wa yahior. He spoke it and it happened. That's a pretty powerful God. His word created it. That's, that is a significantly profound, powerful God. Now, there's order to it. First day, second day, third day. It was good, it was good, it was good. What's the only thing in creation that was not good? That man would be alone. It was not good that man would be alone. And so he creates a helpmate. <laughs> The tree of good and evil. He creates woman. So you see the creation of man and woman, not out of the head that she would rule over him, not out of the foot that he would rule over her, but from her side or from his side. This idea of created both in the image of God, he created them. One isn't to, to be, you know, a slave of the other. Joint heirs. So you see this order. You see this idea of nothing. You see a God that is above all creation. Yes? So he does this. Now let's contrast that, this idea that he's eternal and transcendent, he's all-powerful, and yet what's interesting is he's all-powerful, but he's not capricious and mischievous. Here's a story um, from the Babylonian account of creation with Marduk, which was the 12th century B.C., uh, I'll just give you a synopsis of it. One of the oldest, if not the oldest in the world, concerns the birth of the gods and the creation of the universe and human beings. In the beginning, there was only an uh, undifferentiated water swirling in chaos. Out of this swirl, the waters divided into sweet, fresh water known as the god Apsu, the salty, bitter water, the goddess Tiamat. 
Once differentiated, the union of these two entities gave birth to the younger gods. These young gods, however, were extremely loud, troubling the sleep of Apsu at night and distracted him from his work by day. Upon the advice of vizier Mumu, Apsu decides to kill the younger gods. Tiamat, hearing of their plan, warns her eldest son Enki, and he puts Apsu to sleep and kills him. And from Apsu's remains, Enki creates his home. Tiamat, once the supporter of the younger gods, now is enraged that they have killed her mate. She consults with the god Quingu, who advises her to make war on the younger gods. Tiamat re- rewards Quingu with the tablets of destiny, which legitimizes the rule of the... Anyone bored with this yet? <laughs> this would be a fun one to teach in Sunday school, wouldn't it? But you know what's interesting about it is it begins with this idea that... The birth of the gods and the creation of the universe, in the beginning, there was only undifferentiated water swirling in chaos. So in the beginning, what existed? Water. That culture couldn't comprehend nothing. And then they have gods warring with each other that are capricious and they're immoral and they're doing to each other what we don't even consider moral to do to one another. Yes? You've kept me awake at night. I'm going to kill you. I don't know if that's a God I want to serve. Let's take a look at uh, Theogony. This is the Greek mythology of the creation of the world. Uh, And it tries to put in order the confusion of the Greek mythology. Uh, Hesiod is the one who wrote it. And they were recounted orally and people wrote them down. But this is basically the structure of it. Uh, The book begins with the myths of creation He continues with the gods of the first generation, so on. Um, Hesiod speaks of the muses and their influence on men. He invokes them to help in his work. Cosmogony is the birth of the world. At first, there is nothing but chaos and night. So you have something, don't you? Chaos and night. Little by little, everything evolves into the order of the primordial gods. Uh, Uranus, Gaia appear, the sons of Gaia, the earth, Uranus, the sky are the first generations. Cronus, the father of Zeus, belongs to his, this first generation. Uh, the second generations of God, the second generation includes the sons of night. The third generation of gods among the third generations are the sons of Cronus and Rhea. Uh, Zeus and his siblings, this part of the story includes the myth of Prometheus. Um, Zeus fights for power. Tanakamaki, the Titans, uh, one of the outstanding battles with Zeus. The fourth generation includes the children of Zeus along with the children of Aphrodite and those of other divine marriages. Uh, the hero catalog, heroes are human. They are mortals who have become famous for having performed great deeds and therefore above other men. So what do you see in, in these creation stories from ancient cultures? You see a god or gods, small g, that aren't above creation because one contains water, the other contains night. But yet in the God of the Israelites, Western heritage, this is a God that is above creation. There was nothing and he made it. There's nothing that exists that he didn't make. Yes? And what's interesting is if you look at... Um, uh, First Kings chapter 18 with Elijah, and he's contending with the prophets of Baal or Baal. And, uh, and, and they're crying out to Baal, and they're cutting themselves, and they're, they're genuflecting, and they're screaming, and they're doing it all day long. And he finally just begins to mock them. He says, maybe your God's in the bathroom. 
you know, and he, and he says, enough is enough. And he tells everyone, cover the sacrifice with water, get more buckets of water. And he just declares the, the God of, of all creation. And the next thing you know, it consumes a sacrifice. And then uh, they go and they, they slaughter the prophets of Baal. And, and, and you see him almost mocking the, the, the powerlessness of these small gods, gods with a, a small G. And, and yet here in, in the creation story, uh, you see this idea that he is an eternal God. He's transcendent. He is all powerful. And yet that power is not exercised capriciously or mischievously. It's exercised in accordance with God's very nature as a rational, moral, loving, and even gracious being. You see the order of creation. It's unlike any story in the history of the world. It's ordered. It's rational. It's kind. Um, he, he's, he's, a, he's a God different from any other in the history of the world. God didn't create man in order to be served, by the way. In all of these other accounts, in every other creation account, in any other culture, those gods, man serves those gods. What's fascinating about the God of Genesis is that he didn't create man to serve him, but he serves man. What does he do in Genesis? He creates a garden. I've given you everything that you need. He serves man. And, and this service is seen in the second word tonight, and it's that word covenant. This covenant is this idea that, that God would serve man. A contract or a covenant. It's this idea that it was struck with God. A covenant was like an agreement or a contract. The covenant was if Abraham and his people worshipped one God only, he would look after him and his people, belief in one God, monotheistic. This was different from all other cultures at the time. Uh, you find it in Genesis 17. And it says, when Abraham was 99 years old, and this is what you were referring to, Genesis 17, when he was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me, be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of many nations. He goes on to say that I'm gonna, you're going to be in prison, but I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. You'll occupy it after 400 years. He lays this all out. And you know what's fascinating about this covenant that God makes? What is Abram's response to the covenant God gives him? Does anyone remember? He falls on his face laughing. You're kidding me. I mean, my wife is barren. She's in her 80s, boss. And, and even later, she begins to giggle. And that's why they named the child Isaac, which means laughter. Now, this word covenant has been lost in our culture. We struggle over this. And, and the word in the Hebrew is berith or berith in the Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I think it's berith. And, and, and this word covenant, we've, we've lost the idea. But from the Hebrew word, when we did the translation of the Septuagint, we put it into Greek. Uh, the word was translated uh, diatheke, which then was translated into Latin as testamentum, testamentum, where we get the Old Testamentum and the New Testamentum, right? Now, it's not in much use today. Um, we don't really understand this word covenant. 
until we get to this idea that we covered earlier, a last will and testamentum. Last will and testament. Uh, I don't see him here, but Mike Blickian is our, our will probate trust attorney. And my wife and I went to his offices in Woodland Hills. And we sat down and did all the paperwork because we were getting ready to go to Israel together on the same plane. We wanted to make sure, you know, we had signed where we needed to sign and made sure everything was covered. What were we doing? Leaving an inheritance. Well, what is this idea of inheritance? Heir? Right? Heritage? And why were we leaving them an inheritance? It's more money, but yeah. Huh? No, 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 no. The, new, the last will and testament. Stay with me. Don't, don't, don't get all philosophical on me. To take care of them. To bless them. Right? We want to do something good for them. I didn't leave it to all you guys. Although you're very worthy of it. But why not you and why why my kids? They're my res- I'm sorry? Covenant before the Lord. They're my responsibility. I've been entrusted with their care, yes. It is an agreement, this idea of a last will and testament. It's unilaterally initiated, and the terms are set by a single party, and it's a binding promise. Guess who wasn't there that day when we signed our last will and testament? The kids. One party, which would be my wife and I, one party is making the contract for the benefit of another. This is what is seen in the divine covenant with Abraham. Remarkable to ancient civilization that God would freely make a promise or a covenant with mortal man. Are you grasping this so far? So we have creation, now we have covenant. God is distant, but he's also personal. He's distant, but he's also personal. How is he personal? He cares about his people. And in this covenant, what's fascinating is that he lays this out, this covenant in Genesis 17, and then he goes further after Moses and the Israelites come out of Egypt, right? And they're in the Sinai, Exodus 19. And in the Sinai, what happens? God says, and indeed, and if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. And following this covenant that he reinstates or, or reemphasizes, he then gives them these tablets that contain what? The Decalogue, which is what? Ten Commandments, which is what? Word of God. Laws. Thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not. They're laws. Restraints, wise restraints. So he gives them this, this decalogue, these Ten Commandments, these laws to govern them by. He lays this out, and all of a sudden, Israel becomes a theocracy. A theocracy. They're governed now by the law of God. You do this, I do this. Right? So this concept of a theocracy, that they have a God that they're governed by. You think this is unique? It's not. We have Hammurabi. 
Hammurabi's code, 18th century. They believe it to be older than Genesis, which I find hard to believe. But we look at this idea of Hammurabi, and it's a theocracy. And what is he saying? In essence, he's saying, I have divine sanction and divine power. This is a theocracy, and I am appointed with divine power, right? And then what does he do? With this divine power, he then asserts Hammurabi's code. Yes? Well, here's the problem. Hammurabi dies. He's a mortal man. And this divine instruction for a man first came, and then he laid out the commandments. The difference is the kingship, which we went with creation, covenant, now we're going to go to kingship. The difference is the kingship preceded the divine law code. Well, what happened in Israel? This is what we're going to take a look at tonight, and we'll close. I've got 10 minutes left, and this is what's fascinating to me, and I really want to focus on it, and this is why it's so significant in Western heritage and Western culture. If you have a Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'll read it to you. Now, remember with Hammurabi, the kingship preceded the divine law code. Did Israel have a king in Exodus 19? No, they had God. He said, appoint those to rule over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. There was still a, a representative form of government, but it, there, it was God. And he would be a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And the Ten Commandments, these, this Decalogue, they were required to obey it. And God ruled them, and it was a theocracy. But it was also, in a sense, watch this. In Hammurabi, you, you say there's a theocracy, but the difference is the kingship preceded the divine law code. Now watch this. First Samuel chapter 8, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in the ways, and they turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. They'd had God. Unlike any culture on the face of the earth, they were following an invisible God who was a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day, who had given the Ten Commandments. The finger of God wrote them. They're honoring this. They're, they're obeying it. He's a personal God. He resides with them. He's made a covenant with them. This is unlike any culture on the face of the earth. And this is what's fascinating. Then they come to Samuel and they say, your kids are losers. We want a king like everybody else like all the other nations. We want one like Hammurabi. We want one like the Babylonians. We want a king. Then all the elders of Israel said this, verse six, but this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people. What is that? It's called democracy. Anybody? So you see this tension of a theocracy and a democracy. Heed the voice of the people and all that you, they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. 
So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots and he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground, reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equip for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his slaves. And he will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, and your finest young men and your donkeys, and will put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his slaves." And you will cry out in that day because your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Huh. Now, what did God say to Samuel? I'm still going to be with you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm acknowledging that they want this, but he didn't pull his covenant blessing from them. He acknowledged they want another government. He let them do it. They wanted a king. And God said, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me. Um, only God can, can dissolve this contract, this, this last will and testament, this covenant, yes? I mean, the, the last will and testament my wife made, can the kids? No. We're the only ones who can dissolve it. They, they can't. It is a last will and testament. This is a binding promise that we're going to give them. God didn't rescind it. He, he allows and sanctions a Hebrew monarchy. Anyone fascinated by that? He allows and sanctions. He warns them, but he allows and sanctions it. So they end up with two kings. The first king, does anyone remember the first king? Saul. Saul. This guy, his, his reign ended less than ideal to say the least. It really ended badly. His corpse and his son's corp, corpse were hanging um, uh, on the walls of, uh, what is the city we visited? Um, Bet Shen. And, and that's where they had his remains hanging. And, and why? He disobeyed the Lord. The kingdom was ripped from him. And, and, and uh, we had another king too. Who was that? Who followed Saul? Now, both men disobeyed God, didn't they? God said, God said to Saul, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. And he saved Agag, right? And the best of the fatted sheep and on and on. He didn't obey God. And he blamed the people. And then God tore the kingdom from him. David begins to rise. Saul knew he was coming. And so what does Saul try to do to David? Murder him. He tries to kill him. He tries to murder him. Is David a better king? David and Bathsheba? Murder of Uriah the Hittite, adulterer, murderer, liar. I'm just saying morally, he may have had a heart, but he did things that there was no sacrifice in all of Israel for. Anybody in here commit murder? Anybody in here? The Bible says that if you... Anyways, I'll leave that alone. You were right in that there was a response to their moral failure. But what's fascinating about this is who confronted Saul when he 
transgressed God's law. Samuel, did Saul acknowledge that he had played the fool? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He acknowledged that I've blown it. I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. He didn't repent. He just acknowledged he blew it. Who did David get confronted by? Samuel confronted Saul. Who confronted David? Nathan. Nathan. And he told him this whole story about a man who had a little goat and a rich man who had a bunch of them. And the rich man had visitors and he went and stole the other man's goat that was a family pet and slaughtered it. David said, that man should die. And what did Nathan say to him? You that man. Now at that point, what could David have done? There was nobody else in the king. What could he have done? He could have killed Nathan and said, I am king. But what did David do? He, he acknowledged, I have transgressed what? Against God. That was his response to moral failure. David said, interestingly enough, I'll get to that. I'm almost finished. Both were condemned by their subjects. Samuel condemned Saul. Nathan condemned David. Rebukes were received and warranted, acknowledged as warranted by both men, yes? David repented, and here's what he did. David acknowledged God's law as supreme. He acknowledged God's law as supreme. No, and this is what's interesting about Western heritage and why this is so significant to our culture. No king can stand above or outside the law. The Declaration of Independence. You have transgressed the laws of nature and nature's God. No king can stand above or outside the law of God. The law was here before you, and God was here before you. And this is the order of how Israel received their law first and then their king second. The law is a check of the king's authority. This set the way for democracy. Why democracy? Because the people could appeal to the law of God if the king was out of line. David grew in favor of the people. Saul wanted him dead. The democracy was saying, David, David, David. You get to 1 Samuel 26, and we were visiting there, the cave of Engedi. David said to Abishai as he's hiding in the cave, Saul comes in to relieve himself from the heat. Many say he's going to the bathroom. They're saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. And David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let let us go. This is when he was in the enemy camp. There's another story of Engedi, but both cases, David spared Saul's life, Right? Saul was bent on destroying David, which would have been a violation of God's law because who had anointed David? God did. The scripture says for us in the New Testament that God appoints all positions of authority and we're to honor those in positions of authority, good or bad. They're appointed there for our benefit. David refused to do the same to Saul. When he had the chance to kill him, he didn't. Who am I to put my hand against the Lord's anointed? And I'll close with this. I'll be two minutes late. In this... Heritage we've received, 
starting with Jerusalem, this idea of the Israelites, the Hebrews, the reason why it's so significant in our culture is because you have a theocratic government and a democratic government that are in tension with one another. The office of the ruler has the sanction of God himself. God appoints all positions of authority. But the subject can be rebuked if they violate God's law. Never before in the history of the world was that understood. That the law of God is personal for every human being. Everyone's been created in the image of God, and we are all subject to the law of God, even the king, and the king is not above the law of God. This is what heavily influenced and transformed Western culture. And then we're going to see as we take this, and by the way, this, this is a people that had th- three kings and then the kingdom was split, right? And they really didn't exist very long. Now, they've existed as a people and they've been restored to a nation, but as far as lasting one plot of land, no. Compared to the Romans and the British, no. But they've had an enormous influence on mankind and have survived even without a temple because their God is still alive. Because he'll never die. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and he's the only one who sees the future. And the only way that we can prepare for the future is to take a good look at the past because he gives us a roadmap to the future as the present is passing by rapidly. And that is the importance of this heritage and this inheritance. We have to understand what we've been given and prepare it for the future. I'm finished. Any questions? Oh, thank you back there. One person was excited, yeah. <laughs> yes. Any questions? Comments? Or you just want to go home? Thank you. I know it is a Bible study, but it, it's important because it's our Western heritage. It's this idea of where we both get this, this concept of, and we're going to see with the Greeks, we're going to see a love of philosophy, a love of knowledge. They're going to see this idea of inquiring of what is good. They're going to pursue science. You're, you're going to see in, in Athens where they start to say, what is the good of man? And they start to ask these questions. The unexamined life isn't worth living. We're going to see, we're going to take a look at Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. We're going to see all of these aspects of it. And it will be fascinating. And then we're going to put them all together. And this is what our founders did when they looked at all the past civilizations of history. And they put together this constitutional republic with this understanding of who we are, how we've been created. And it has been the most magnificent gift. But if we forget what we've received and we aren't prepared to pass it on, we have no heritage. So... Yes. Do you think it might be uh, a turning point now with so many uh, people getting with uh, sexual harassment and getting out of power? You see so many of the people who really have an arrogance and they're being brought low now. You know, this is a fascinating... The, the question is about all the folks being affected by sexual harassment. We've had the same issue in our church, and I've had to establish some church discipline in relation to that, which some of you are familiar with, and I'll have to go into more detail later, and I'm not going to do it tonight, but for any of you who think that it was for light causes, it was not. It was very significant. We're still in the process of working through it, and uh, 
um, re- wanting to restore, and but there, it's a long road. So, um, and we did this long before we had heard about any of the stuff with Harvey Weinstein and Spacey and all the rest of them. Um, but what's what's interesting to me is as we've covered this concept of libido dominandi, and you get this idea of libido, and I've covered it briefly, but I'll just do it again tonight. Um, when when you have this lust for power, and this destroys men and women created equal. Uh, it, it's this idea of subjecting another human being, and and you use this this base drive, which is the, the 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 sexual drive, to oppress another human being and and to force your will on them for sake of selfish purposes, and this is where pornography runs rampant. But it's so easy to sell because we're all driven by that debase instinct. So sex sells. So we have an entire industry that. If you want to sell something, you sell it with sex. Well, this industry's created, these icons move to the surface, and then all of a sudden it collapses on itself because it can't sustain, because the people that start to decry all the barriers and, and the morality and these wise restraints that make men free, the only way that they can rise in effectiveness is to decry the existence of these rules and regulations and throw off restraint. Well, as they throw off restraint, they build this Tower of Babel that just collapses in itself. And that's what's happening. Um, people rise in the industry and they say, wait a minute, these people are hypocrites. This doesn't make any sense. And you rise in the political realm and it's going to happen on the right and the left. You're going to see folks that are all guilty. And we have only hit the, the iceberg. This is just, the, this is the tip of the iceberg. It's going to get exponentially worse. Trust me. But what's happening is we're realizing this is just not how we want to live. And I really think there's a conviction happening across the country. And, um, and everyone's taking a new look at what it's all about. And a lot of folks are disillusioned. I think this is a great time not only to, to reinvestigate and, and once again declare these eternal truths, but also commit yourself to living by them. Um, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. If you think that I'm in this because I, I, I love to war and fight with people, you, you don't get it. They're not the enemy. They're the opportunity. And until you have a heart for the lost, you have no understanding of this heritage we've received. This is why we're here. Yes. But isn't that our, our, what you're saying now is, is kind of what we're supposed to be doing, I guess, because if, that's, if the, the house of sand is collapsing, then we've got to be there with the house of rock. Yeah. When it, when it falls down, help people rebuild on a firm foundation. Good call. One more? Yes? Uh, there's governments have accountability, but based on, on, uh, the subjective nature of, of the one who's an authority, but yes, accountability to God who is, who is above the law and precedes the law or was prior to the law. He, he's above creation. He's higher than us. He's supreme and, and gods are not like us and, or God is not like us yet he's, we're creating his image. We have a relationship with him. He wants us to be relational. So we are accountable and we're relational with that God. Yeah. In this covenant, he really wants to have a relationship with his, with his creation. We're the only creatures in all of God's creation that have been given this, this ability to love and have relationship. And, and, it, and it comes through humility. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all. If you want to be the, the greatest be a slave. And, and Christ did not come to be served, but to serve 
We used to call the people who worked in public office public. Let's get back to that. And you know what? A servant speaks when they're spoken to and offers their opinion when they're asked. And one of the things we love about libido dominandi is the minute we get a contingency of people who agree with us, we get angry. Well, just stow it. Because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Be kind. You are representing the God of the universe who loves those people. And practice that civility, community, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? That's 7.55. I'm cooked. Let's give it a, let's give it a rest. Amen? <laughs> Bless you guys.